Another executive is leaving JP Morgan, but you're in the right place because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. It is Thursday. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This is David Hansen. I had to think about it. I had to think. No, no, no. I had, I, I had to think about whether it was Friday yet. Yeah. It's almost, almost. Friday. Almost. I don't I don't think I, I don't look forward to Friday. I feel like the way a lot of people do. I like being here. I like doing what I do. But Friday it still just has that glow to it. Sounds it's, good. It's Friday. It starts with an F. <laughs> what does that have to Your pick for the NCAA champion this year was Duke. At the beginning of the year. Yeah. It was Duke. How far did Duke make it? First round. <laughs> Second round, if you're right. gonna call this like new kind of round of and it's, it's first first round. Okay. First round. It's time to redeem yourself. You got four choices left. Who is going to come out of the final four, the champion of the NCAA tournament? Wisconsin. Shocker. Huh? Are you surprised? It's a good yeah. pick. I, I was I was hoping that you'd actually redeem yourself. There is Zero chance that that's going to come. To so pass. now Wisconsin's just done. I'm, I yeah, them. you basically cursed them because you went from Duke out in the first round, and then for your actual bracket, you picked Louisville. Mm-hmm. They didn't. They got knocked off by a number eight. Yeah. So, sorry, Wisconsin. Sorry, Wisconsin fans. David has just buried your team. Let's get on to the headlines. First headline of the day: We're going to Bloomberg. Blythe Masters ends 27-year run at J.P. Morgan. David, we've seen one executive after another taking off from J.P. Morgan. Is this one in particular something more for J.P. Morgan investors to worry about? Well, this one, not quite as much as a surprise as the last two, when we had Frank Bisignano leave and then Mike Cavanaugh. This one was kind of expected because the group that she oversaw uh, had a big fine and they're kind of getting out of the business. So not a huge surprise here. But 27 years at the company, this is a high-level executive, to me, I'm, I'm happy with it. You can make the case that J.P. You're Morgan... You're happy with it. I'm happy with okay. it. Okay. You can make the case that J.P. Morgan managed itself well through the crisis, has had pretty solid results over the last five years, mm-hmm. but there have been some things that I'm not crazy about as a shareholder. So having a kind of a new leadership in there, other than Diamond, I think it's a good thing. Is that going to happen? I mean, we're seeing a lot of shifting going on below Diamond. Right. No, I'm saying Diamond's going to stay there, but the people oh, okay. around him, okay. I don't have a problem that a lot of these people are leaving. Okay, okay, gotcha. That's what I'm saying. Um, yeah, and, and from my perspective, it's not all that surprising that, that they are. It, I, I think a lot of people point to like the, the Jamie Diamond thing, and I've mentioned that before, that Diamond probably isn't going anywhere anytime soon. But the other thing is, is that there's a lot of scrutiny on J.P. Morgan and on what it can do and on its executives. So Kavanaugh, for instance, going over to Carlisle, um, that seems like a, a good opportunity to get out of the spotlight of the too-big-to-fail banks mm-hmm. and uh, maybe also get a nice payday uh, on the way there. And when I think about a business like J.P. Morgan, this isn't like... Apple or a technology company where you have to have someone who's like a visionary and where this company is going to be in five to ten years. Mm-hmm. The business model's there. They don't have to do anything. They just have to operate it successfully, right? And, and make good loans, yes. be a good partner with their clients here. So nothing revolutionary here. We just have to have good, solid management, and hopefully they get that in place. All right. Let's go to the second headline. Second headline. This one's from MarketWatch. The headline is, now there's a 1987 chart to get worried about. <laughs> And they've laid the 
2009 bull market right across the 1982 bull market and then the subsequent drop in, I guess that's 1987, uh, Black Monday. They're laying it over. Are you now convinced that we're due for a catastrophic drop because they laid the cards over each other? I don't, I, I don't even know what to say about this. But when you, when you showed this to me earlier, I spent some time at my desk doing the same thing. It's kind of fun to sit there and take today's chart and just overlay other charts on it. And it's like, okay, mm-hmm. they look kind of similar. There's a squiggly line, and it goes from low left to, to higher right. And then it goes down and then, and then no, Well, then something happens. In this case, they happen to overlay one where at the end there's a drop. But in some cases, there's not. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so stupid. I, anybody that's... But there was a tri-stutter at the top. Yeah, right. Um, I, I don't... So the, my problem with this is that people reading this may not, may not understand how ridiculous doing that is. So this is uh, who, who is the publisher? It was from Market Watch. It was from Market Watch, but so but they took the chart from somebody else. I don't think Market Watch produced the. Okay, chart there. well then shame on shame on Market Watch for putting that up. Shame on whoever created that chart for creating that chart because that's dumb in the first place. Um, because there are invest there are I don't want to say necessarily investors because that implies that they have a certain level of knowledge, but there are readers that may run across this and say, "Oh my gosh, maybe I should pull." my retirement investments out of the low-cost index funds that I have them for the long term because there's a real possibility that this, that this is meaningful mm-hmm. and there's about to be this big drop like 1987. Right. And that, that would be horrible. Very bad. That would, be a, that would be a bad decision. I agree. Fired up. I have David. nothing else to say. It's ridiculous. Fired up. Let's go, to the, let's go to the third headline. Wall Street Journal. It's from the Wall This is indeed Wall Street Journal. Small banks look to sell... As rules bite. Just in general, rules do bite. Yeah. World with no rules. And the other That'd kind of better. sub-headline that I saw people talking about, it was said, too small to succeed. The new regulations are making it hard for really tiny banks mm-hmm. to have good returns. And the one thing I just wanted to say on this is, yes, that may be true. And what could this mean for investors? And could these smaller banks be acquisition targets? And we haven't seen a ton of bank acquisitions because banks really haven't needed to go out and acquire because they haven't ne- had the need uh, to Well, not even the need, the, 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 the want, the desire. The desire. Right. Yeah. Why, why do you want to take on... I mean, it's, it's nice to have low-cost or no-cost deposits, but in an environment where you can't earn much on them, if you can't get a great price, and that's, that's been the problem with these smaller banks is you can't get a good price. Right. The big banks are trading at what I would argue are attractive valuations, but then you get down to, to a lot of the smaller banks, and, and there are pockets of opportunity in there, yep. but a lot of the smaller banks and the mid-cap banks, they're trading at high valuations. Right, they're, and, they're and tra- looking at the, the pockets, I think what, if you're searching for kind of what could be an acquisition target, I think you want to look for a bank that has really, really high asset quality, but then a lot of low-cost deposits, because there are banks out there that need to acquire low-cost deposits, that are kind of bumping up against what they have and they don't want to go out and borrow. So those smaller banks that maybe don't have great returns but have really good deposit bases, they yeah, have targets. Yeah, well, at the same time, I, I wouldn't... Personally, I wouldn't suggest anybody going out and hunting for a bank because it could be an acquisition mm-hmm. target. Um, because sometimes a bank gets acquired because it's got a good 
uh, deposit base, right? Right. But that may that may be a third of a bank, right? So if you're going out there, well, that's what and, I said with the asset quality, with the asset. Well, the the asset quality, the management, and the and the the, the operating results, mm-hmm. right? Right. So you can have good asset quality, but just no no leverage on the business, no no earnings, no real earnings that the management is is uh, shooting for, and a good deposit base. And it's like okay, well, this could probably make a good acquisition for a, for a bigger bank because they could deploy that deposit base better. Mm-hmm. But to own it for the long term, as it is, is kind of a turd. Okay. So, so you're not hunting for the acquisition targets. I'm not turd hunting. Okay. I, it, <laughs> so I'm I'm kind of joking, but not not totally joking. I, I think the the approach is is that if you want to do that, look for banks that could potentially be uh, acquisition targets but that are also good banks and well-run banks to start with. And so if they don't get acquired, you're, you're still okay. Yeah, you're not feeling like a dum-dum holding on to that for three or five years. Nobody likes to feel like a dum-dum. Nobody feels like... Nobody. Although, dum-dum, those dum-dum pops, yeah, those are pretty good. So I don't know. And you get those at your local bank. No, you don't. You're just your bank... You're yes. a Bank of America customer. When's the last time you walked into Bank of America and they handed you a dum-dum? Well, I'm talking before it was Bank of America. I'm talking Nations Bank. They had dum-dum pops? Yeah. yeah. How old were you at that point? <sighs> Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Our focus for today, I, I am on the hot seat today. It is my day for a stock pitch. For on, real this time? This is, this is for real. On Tuesday, you pitched uh, Psyche, S-I-K-E, which was, why do I keep forgetting the name of it? What is it? Security. Security. National. That's it. Credit Enterprise. Credit Enterprise. All right, I'm going with NSTAR Group today. The ticker symbol is ESGR. One of the places where, and, and, and I should point out that I did not go digging myself and find this gem from my own efforts. Hat tip goes to the great investors on the other side of the full services, uh, the, the, the full paid services. This was a stock that was identified uh, a, a couple of years ago um, by some of our newsletters, um, and that's how it got to my attention. Okay. One of the areas that, that I like to look for that I think that there are a lot of opportunities are companies that do things that people usually don't think about, that, that don't, they don't come in contact with. And in the insurance business, we know auto insurers, we know life insurers, um, we know commercial insurers even because we can, you know, we see that kind of Makes stuff sense. out there. Right. But what happens in the insurance business sometimes is that you get somebody that starts an insurance company or a, a, an insurer starts a line of, of insurance that doesn't do so well. They don't really know what they're doing. And they don't reserve well for whatever reason. They just do terribly at that business and they have to do what's called putting into runoff, which basically means they're not writing any new business. Mm-hmm. They just take the policies that they have in place already and manage those out through the life of them, pay off the claims that come in, and wait for the policies to that's a, And that's a pretty common thing. I mean, especially coming out of the crisis, you'll hear a lot of insurance companies now being, well, we're running off that book. So it's, yeah, it's not it's uncommon. Common. It's not, exactly. Yeah, it's not uncommon. And so what NSTAR does is NSTAR goes around to these companies that are putting businesses, that either the entire business is going into runoff or a line is going into runoff, and they say, hey, We'll buy that from you. Turd hunting. That is exactly what they're doing. They are turd hunting. Um, So so they go to these businesses, and basically the the value proposition is, number one, you take this business that you don't even want, and you get cash for it right now. Yep. 
Uh, number two, management can stop thinking about this business, and, and that's if it's a one line of a bigger insurance business. They can stop thinking about that part of the business. Um, so, so they take that off their hands, and NSTAR's, um, their, their focus is on managing these runoff, that's their primary focus, on managing these runoff businesses, and they've done quite well on it, and have been earning really attractive returns. Historically, NSTAR has been primarily in non-life insurance, so that's uh, property and casualty mainly. Um, one of their bigger acquisitions, for example, was a, a company called Seabright Insurance, which did um, ocean ocean vessel insurance. That of course. Kind of thing. Why of wouldn't course, it? Of course. Um, so that, that's been their primary, uh, that's been NSTAR's primary focus for most of its life. But now it's gotten a little bit into uh, life, uh, life insurance runoff. And they've also acquired a trio of companies that are primary insurance writers, so that they're active, actively writing insurance. These aren't it's not just all old policies sitting on the books. Exactly. These are actively writing new policies. And, and what they said, the reason that they got into it is, is, for one, it's a way for them to diversify the business. And number two, it actually makes them a more attractive acquisition candidate for some of these runoff businesses because they're able to do uh, certain things that they couldn't do without the ability to write new insurance. Gotcha. So, so there's some reinsurance and some commuting kind of things, some get into some wonky insurance stuff that, that they're able to do now that they have active insurance uh, underwriting capabilities. So obviously sounds like a very niche thing to do. And what do we it know is. about management? Are, is their whole life like dedicated to finding these runoff companies? Uh, have they been there a while? What's kind of the history of the company look like from that perspective? This is what they do. The, the CEO had started a company that did this, that bought runoff, runoff insurance businesses, and then that basically turned into what is now NSTAR. So he's been there from the beginning. Collectively, management and the board, I think, own close to 20% of the company. So you've got a, a team here who not only has been there for a while, um, but also has a very big economic uh, tie yep. to the results of the company. Compensation, the, the compensation practices, are, uh, how, they, how they set the compensation for the executives is very subjective. That's not always my favorite. But compensation overall is not particularly high. Right. In fact, it's not high at all. Um, and when you have, I, I think when you have a management team that owns such a substantial portion of the company, from what I've seen, it generally will go one way or the other in terms of extremes. You'll either have a management team that owns a lot and so understands what it feels like to be a shareholder and goes for reasonable pay, uh, reasonable right. pay scale. On the other hand, you have a management team that may own a lot and think that that entitles them to do whatever they want with the company, and you have these ridiculous pay packages. Okay. And, and NSTAR, I think, is in the group that understands that, that they are shareholders with everybody else and don't overcompensate themselves. Uh, the board of directors, also pretty interesting. A really cool group. I, I, th- I know that's a weird it's way to cool. describe it. <laughs> <Where> sunglasses, <laughs> smoke cigarettes. Yeah, it's cool. They had, yeah, jazz, a lot of foot tapping going on in the board meetings. Uh, Chuck Aker, uh, the, the mutual fund manager, uh, really sharp guy. I, I think a, a really good guy. To, he's on the board, okay. which I think is really cool. Um, the founder of um, uh, Endurance Specialty Holdings, which is... Another, it's a specialty insurance company. Doesn't do what NSTAR does, actually writes insurance, but he was a founder, one of the founders of uh, Endurance, uh, an insurer that I think is a quality insurer. He's on the board. Um, 
and the board compensation, which is something I've been I've been looking at, at this a lot lately with companies. A lot of there are a lot of boards out there that are just gratuitously overcompensated. The, these are guys that, that are showing up for a few meetings a year, um, and, and they they put their names on the line and they, they mm-hmm. take some risk in doing it, but they're getting paid, they're getting compensated on the order of three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars for doing that. It's a nice gig. Yeah. Not bad at all. Uh, at NSTAR, the, the highest compensated uh, board member, at least last year, uh, was compensated in total about $100,000, which is, I mean, that's still nice yeah. for, for what the gig is, but um, it's much more reasonable than a lot of companies. NSTAR trading at about, I, I, if I remember correctly, 1.4 times tangible book value. I, I think it's a fair price. I don't think it's uh, extremely low. Um, I certainly don't think it's high, but I think for the kind of low to mid-teens uh, percentage return on equity that you're getting from NSTAR historically, I think that is a really attractive valuation. Okay. Um, and there's a lot of room for the company to continue to grow. And the ticker again? ESGR. All right. Good pitch. Thanks. It's on my radar. It, Consider it on my radar. It better be. All right. All right, moving on to our Mail? mailbag. We have an email address. That email address is WTMI at fool.com. Love getting questions from the WTMI community. Our question for today comes from Matt in Phoenix. Matt writes, I just got done reading the first chapter in The Intelligent Investor, and they ripped apart The Motley Fool for creating a, quote, dopey idea. Could you guys discuss this and share any lessons learned? David, what is this dopey idea? This podcast, probably, right? Sigh. That's probably why. <laughs> Laugh it up. <laughs> Good one. Well, the dopey idea, as referred to in the Intelligent Investor, is the Foolish Four, which is kind of Tell a play us what on. Tell the Foolish. Yeah, what is the Foolish Four? Which is a play on with dogs. Dogs of the Dow. Dogs of the Dow. So back in, I don't even know when it started. Not to be confused with Black Sabbath's uh, Pigs of War. Do not get it confused. That's, that would be a bad mistake. So this, do you know when the Foolish Four was originated? I don't remember the 90, exact year. Let's call it ninety-seven. Let's say ninety-eight. Late nineties. It's a good year. Uh, it's good. Yeah. So what, vintage. What it basically tried to do, and I'm not going to get it exactly here, is you would take basically the four uh, stocks in the Dow with the lowest price, mm-hmm. um, take off the lowest price one. Uh, oh, there's a dividend yield in there as well. It was basically kind of a calculation. Take the four lowest, highest dividend. Suffice it to say, it was it was a, a relatively co- maybe complex overstates it, but it was it was this formula that got you down to four stocks. And the idea was that you buy these four stocks, you hold them for a year, you run this calculation again the next year, and, and, and you buy those four stocks. You sell the first four, you mm-hmm. buy those four, and you do this over and over again, and that would, that's how you would win. Right, and they back-tested it against historical data, and they said if you would have done this, you would have had great returns, which is kind of why I think people here got fired up about it. But as they point out in The Intelligent Investor, you could have done that based on many variables mm-hmm. and kind of found patterns, just like we were talking about overlaying charts. If you look at historical data, you can find patterns and kind of make shortcuts in terms of creating returns. But as we, I mean, this is, again, 1997, 1998, this was a very infant company at the, the time. The formative years. The formative years. Everyone is still learning. I'm sure people out there listening and watching are still learning. Mm-hmm. And we progressed and realized that's not the best way to find winning investments. Yeah. and kind of transition to focusing on 
finding good companies at fair prices and away from kind of the easy I get think, rich quick. I think some of my best lessons in investing have been from making really dumb mistakes that have lost me money. Mm-hmm. And as far as the, the progression of The Fool from then until now, I think if, if you look at the way the company thinks about the process now, that is that The Foolish Four was a very kind of formula-based investing approach, which is very attractive to people because it's compelling to think, oh, well, I have this sort of equation that all I've got to do is plug in these numbers and boom, it spits out right. these are the companies to buy. That's, it's, it's a nice thought. But when we look at the companies that have done well over time, first of all, the Foolish Four, it, again, if I'm remembering correctly here, the, the formula was you, you're churning this every single year. Yeah. But if you look at the success that David Gardner has had, and if you look at the success that Tom Gardner has had in their, their best investments, these are investments that they've held for years and years and years and years. Amazon, a good example, obviously didn't come out of the Foolish Four calculation. David Gardner has held it since... 97. 90, is 97. So right around the four time. So 97 until today, and that's been 100-plus bagger for him. So right. um, today, or way before today, but today, uh, I think there's much more of a realization that, that you can't. There, there isn't a simple calculation mm-hmm. like that. You have to understand the business. You have to understand business, and then you have to understand the individual businesses that you're investing in, and you have to understand the management teams and, 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 and the, entire, the entire picture. Not just the numbers. Not just and, and he says he was reading in the first chapter of The Intelligent Investor. should say it's the updated version that has commentary from Jason Zweig. Right, Ben Graham wasn't Ben right. Graham wasn't talking. <laughs> the Wally Fool wasn't around when Ben Graham was writing the original Intelligent <laughs> right. Investor. So he kind of, it, it was putting it in the context of basically saying, there's no shortcuts here mm-hmm. and you can't get away just doing Exa- a quick I, little trick. I think that is exactly the right, there are no shortcuts. Yeah, and we learn that. Learn our lessons and we admit it. We own up to it. All right, um... Game. game for today. Game for today is Fool in the Blank, and I think we've got a, a special Fool in the Blank today mm-hmm. inspired by our TMF stock draft portfolio. Blank, David, is the one company I dropped from my TMF stock draft 13 team. Fool in that blank. I wouldn't want to drop any of them because we only did this back in August, mm-hmm. so that's not a sufficient holding period here. Right. But if I had to drop one, had to, it would be Annalee Capital. Uh, it was my, we had to pick a REIT as part of the positions, if you think about a fantasy team. So that was my REIT pick. And you might think, he bought a REIT in the summertime. He's probably doing horrible. The stock's actually up since I bought it in the stock draft here. Mm-hmm. But looking forward, along with the other picks on my team, PNC, uh, definitely feel more comfortable with that. Goldman Sachs, more comfortable. So looking at the competitive advantages of five to ten years, Annalee just doesn't have it. They have a good management team in place, and the price is reasonable today. But in terms of holding this for the very, very long term, Annalee's got to be the one that I drop. Do you know what you'd replace it with? I don't know. I didn't know we. Ha- I didn't know that was the option. I just, That'll be next I just, week's in, I just invented that. It'll be next week. Next week. Okay. I won't be here next week. Okay. You have to, you have to <laughs> fool, fool that one in without me. What are you dropping? Uh, I would. Uh, same thing with you. Um, the stocks that I picked for my stock portfolio. Uh, I still feel pretty good about those companies. Capital One, though, if I had to get rid of one, that would be it. Still like the business, still like the, the, the potential that's there, but I think that there are better bargains among banks, uh, and, and I think that there are banks that may also have more opportunity than Capital One. So it's not, it's not necessarily saying that Capital One is terrible. It's saying that 
if I if I got out of it, I think that there are better opportunities. So, so it's more the price today rather than something Capital One. It's 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 price, and then it's and then it's the rest of the the opportunities out there. All right. So you would trade Capital One for PNC? I would. I wouldn't. So you have to keep. Capital One. <laughs> or maybe I just add PNC anyway. I guess I can't. Caps doesn't work that way. No. Mine. <sighs> All right. Finishing off today in the Twitter sphere, David. What is our first and only tweet? It's from John Reeves here at the Motley Fool. He is at Reeves JW. Great piece by at Farnham Street on Coke's fuzzy thinking on compensation. So Farnham Street, that's Shane Parrish, and he wrote an article for us over at Fool.com. Extensive article looking at Coke's new compensation plan. Yeah, this is a great breakdown of the of the uh, comp- new, the new compensation, the, the stock grants that mm-hmm. Coke wants to give to its employees. Right, and he tried to put a price tag on I think he pegged it right under $14 billion in terms of what the actual value is of this compensation plan that's going to, I think it was 6,000 Coke employees, but it really kind of just small percentage that are actually going to get the lion's share of this. This is something, and his conclusion was, well, let's just pay him in cash, and that's something that you have been uh-huh. saying. Uh-huh. And, and Shane really put a good point on there, is saying everyone argues that giving options makes people feel like an owner, but it's more of a lottery ticket because it's based on a price today and you're not really tied to it. You're kind of just hoping that the price goes up in the future and it doesn't really make you act like an owner anymore. So I'll admit that you were right. So, so it's got to come from somebody else. You won't believe me when I say Well, he does a better job of breaking it down than you. Oh, you got to be kidding me. Well, thank you then, Shane, for finally convincing David that finally letting David see the light. Let me mm-hmm. put it that way. Employees should be paid in cash if they want to be owners. If they want to be part of the of the joy and the success, they can buy the stock like the rest of us. And his other point was, when they do this, in order to kind of offset the effects of dilution, they they buy back their shares, which is fine. But then you kind of get into the mindset of, well, let's just buy back our shares at any price. Mm-hmm. And then, as we know, that can be a bad use of money. Terrible, terrible, terrible. As Charles Barkley would say, terrible, terrible. Exactly. All right, that's our show for today. I'm Matt Copenever. This is David Hansen. You can find us on iTunes and listen to us on your commuter while you work out. While you're there, why don't you give us a rating? Let everybody know why you love where the money is. You can also find us on Twitter at TMF Financials. That's all we got. We will see you tomorrow. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.